This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Uh, Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. <laughs> Help me! Help! Good morning, good morning, Professor Ward Scott here in the Manly Warthog Man Cave here at Command Center in the Melton Law Studio. Melton Law with 50 years of experience is the only official law firm partner of the Florida Gators. Melton Law won't back down. They're a full service law provider for all your legal needs. And of course, our Manly Command Center is protected 24-7, 365 by crime prevention. You worry less with crime prevention security systems, and you may contact them today at cpss.net. And of course, check out our mugshots, 45,000 hits a month, because you want to know who the criminals are. So we appreciate you following the Ward Scott Files and uh, tuning in. We have an outstanding conversation we're going to have today about a subject that's on many, many people's minds. And we've got some uh, real expertise here in the form of Nathan Lewis, who has uh, written a book along with Steve Forbes, and, um, uh, uh, some, you know, they just, they just know what they're doing, Elizabeth Ames, and they've been studying this stuff. And we're so fortunate to have a discussion with them. Our guest is actually en route from upstate New York to Washington, D.C., God bless his soul, rather he than I. And he's going down there to talk about uh, the book. Uh, so obviously inflation's on everyone's minds. Every day it seems to climb and climb and climb. And my a memory of this is the last time we had this rampant inflation, we had Democratic Jimmy Carter. And I was in the middle of, of the real estate world at that time. And all of a sudden, most of our deals went south because of the interest rates just prohibited from doing anything. And it took Ronald Reagan to bring us back to our senses. So uh, here we are in the middle of another dilemma. And it's not funny. Uh, there's fossil fuel Depending upon how you look at it, the deliberate maneuver by the uh, push this over to the electric car, which ironically is also powered by fossil fuel. So we've got our expert with us here uh, today, Nathan Lewis, who is really, I suppose, has studied this stuff as much as anybody has. And we'll watch the Facebook chat line and see how your questions are. Nathan, welcome to the show. And you look comfortable there by the side of the road. I, uh, <laughs> I hope you're doing well, sir. Uh, thank you. It's good to be here. I'm actually in a parking lot. It's pretty quiet here. We're not actually on a roadway, but but I'm on my way today to Washington, D.C. to talk about inflation because, uh, you know, they're kind of clueless, too, down there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm watching everything. I don't understand. But I'm just seeing some stuff flash across the screen as we're talking here. Crypto coins, for example. I don't know a thing about them. A lot of people do. Uh, I don't know if that's a good place to start talking, but, uh, you know, what is that all about? <laughs> uh, well, it's been a real interesting uh, arena um, because for the first time, it really introduced the idea into the public mind that you can have private currencies. And this is actually not a new thing. <laughs> Japan in the 1850s had 1,600 private currencies. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not a new thing. 
Uh, and the United States, too, we actually had the national bank system. There was no federal currency. There was actually there's only private currencies by from uh, private banks. But we got out of that. We got into the you know Federal Reserve government monopoly on money mindset. We were raised in it and trained in it. Now, now cryptocurrency has introduced this new idea. We can have our own currency. We can set it up the way we like. And I, I think if the first generation, the Bitcoins and the Bitcoin-like crypto coins, uh, are really not don't work very well as money. They seem to be popular speculative devices, but uh, you know, beanie, beanie babies were popular once too. <laughs> uh, yeah. But I think, but I think we now have we've we've created a sort of precedent which has allowed for uh, the creation of much more promising uh, future currency or payment systems, which uh, are the stable coins. Uh, Tether, the U.S. dollar-linked stable coin, is the most popular. It's actually had other coins in existence at one point. It's gone down a little bit. Um, but the problem there, is, it, that's very convenient because we're all based on dollars anyway, so it's kind of dollar-based. Uh, the problem is, obviously, whatever the fate of the dollar, the fate of Tether is going to be tethered to it. Uh, so we are, I think, gradually moving toward uh, truly alternative currencies. And I hope, we're, and we're getting some uh, actually based on gold, the most traditional the basis of currencies throughout human history. And they're, they're not real big, but uh, they're getting up there. You know, some of them have market caps of three, four, five hundred million now. And it was only a few years ago that Tether, the largest stable coin, had a market cap about the same. So we might see a lot of growth in that as a popular alternative. Well, uh, we've got a pretty knowledgeable viewer who says there's been federal coinage since the 1790s. Um, I guess that's so. Um, but there's now this notion, and I suppose it's true, but we just print money with nothing behind it. And what's your take on that? Well, the money has to come from somewhere. So we do have to create it. And we've been using, uh, it's true, the, the federal government was the, the primary mint in, in the early days of the republic. Um, and, but we also had paper money from the, from the earliest days as well for privately issued. But the difference we have today is, is, is for almost two centuries, up until 1971, this paper money was, you know, had, was formally linked to something, was linked to gold. Uh, and then in 1971, it's not linked to anything. It's just become this wild animal, uh, floating fiat currencies. And as a consequence, because there's no more rules, central bankers can kind of just kind of do whatever they feel like that day, and, and, and which is what they do. They just make stuff up as they go along, according to the political winds. And um, this, the long term, in the short term, the value of the currency goes up and down somewhat chaotically, the floating, floating currencies. But in the long term, there is a clear trend. The clear trend is that it is over time, our currencies tend to lose value. Um, compared to gold, actually, you know, the U.S. dollar is only worth about a 50th of what it was worth in the 1960s when we had the gold standard uh, period. Uh, and the consequences of that are real simple to understand. When your currency goes down in value uh, over time, prices are going to have to go up to, to compensate. A barrel of oil used to be three bucks in the 1960s. It was 20, 25 bucks in the 1990s. Now we're at 120. Um, most of that is, you know, oil itself has something to do with that. But most of that is basically just your money losing value. Well, the article that you're writing and a book you talked about here with us is. Uh, interesting in that 
COVID, for example, there's this notion that that dumping the 600 bucks out, that all contributed to a couple of factors. The de-emphasis of the work ethic, (laughs) for one thing, and that's had problems. And then, of course, the free money, if you will. What's your take on that in your analysis? Can you hear me there, Nathan? He's frozen there. Nathan, can you hear me? We don't have an upload right now, Nathan. We're not getting that, are we? We're not getting any of that, Nathan. Parking lot Wi-Fi. <laughs> Probably can't hear me. I don't even know if he can see me. We're talking with Nathan. Uh, uh, am I frozen too or not? Okay. Yeah, I think he's gone off. Maybe he's... Uh, he disconnected... Huh? Okay, we were trying to contact Nathan Lewis. He's on, he's en route to DC. He's by the side of the road in uh, um, New York, traveling from upstate New York. I think he's going to try to reconnect. Or maybe we can call him on the cell and tell him that we're not connected. So we are looking forward to this conversation. Sometimes when we get these very, very internationally known people, um, we're catching them on the run. He's on his way down to DC along with Stephen Forbes and uh, the uh, Elizabeth Ames to promote this book, which is about, of course, um, uh, the double digit increases in the price of food and gas and automobiles and other essentials and the mounting anxiety of government spending, uh, which is, you know, is really expanding the debt and exceeding the size. You know, just the entire U.S. economy is affected by this. So we're looking forward to this conversation. We hope we can reconnect with Nathan because this is a uh, um, a very interesting conversation. We had a lot of people interested in this show. So, uh, of course, old yours truly here, being the veteran he is, has to sort of ad lib his way through this um, while we try to reconnect with our guest because um, I do rely upon the guest for the conversations when we have a guest. So I'll just talk a little bit about how uh, the supply chain and all that has affected us here uh, in the cattle world. Uh, we can't... Um, do this much longer with the price of diesel uh, being what it is and uh, run our tractors. And um, ideally, we would have fertilized our fields and increased the grass, which we are so good at doing here in the state of Florida for our cattle. And that would have produced more beef, et cetera. Um, But now what we have is uh, difficulty in maintaining the equipment because of the expense of the equipment. Combine that with the difficulty of really finding help because so much of our economy evidently has been negatively affected, if you will, from our point of view, um, with people who don't have to work. They've gotten a check from the government and they'd rather do that and come out and work in the hot sun and uh, fix fence and uh, dig up thistle weed and, you know, kill soda apple and, and uh, watch over the young calves and all that. That's, that's uh, out in the hot sun. It's a lot of stuff to do. 
And so we have a problem with, with labor and we have a problem with costs of production. And then we don't have much for that uh, return on what we produce. And uh, this, I think, in my book, having grown up as a very young, young person in rural America on producing sustainable, self-sustaining farms where everything we ate was really raised right there. Eggs, chickens, milk, a whole bit, corn, everything came from right there on the land. We really, in the beginning days of my memory, of course, I was very teeny then, we didn't have uh, electricity. We had, uh, we had power, uh, lights and things of that nature, which we burned uh, fuel to create, but we didn't have electric lines. There was something came along called the Rural Electrification Program, which then brought power to the farms and that automated them. And, but we had a windmill and that windmill brought up from the earth the best water. Uh, we didn't worry about it being contaminated or anything like that. There was really nothing around to contaminate it. So we had a tin cup hanging on a piece of baling wire and that produced the water. Uh, I remember many a time as a little, little tyke going out to the barn, which I absolutely loved, the mysterious recesses of the barn and the smells of the barn and everything that lived in the barn, the cats and all that. And uh, there would be the milking and you bring the milk in. And of course, you made all the thing from that milk right there with those cattle. So that is going to be a thing of the past as a way of life. The sustainable family farm, and I want to emphasize the word family, is uh, not around. It's, um, it's, it, it, it's, it's now a corporate farm. I went back to one of the farms which I spent a lot of my youth on uh, working in, in, in uh, baling hay and working with beans and corn. And there was a solid brick farmhouse there, which I always remember as being a great joy to be in at the end of the day for television. It had an antenna and you had a rotator device on it that you could go out and spin that rotator and change the direction of that antenna. And you could pick up different stations that way. But it was really out on its own. There was no cable thing like that. Uh, in the initial days, the party they were party line phones, so everybody shared uh, those lines, and people had a code like one long and two shorts, or two shorts and uh, two longs, or something like that. And you knew it was your ring. And and then after a while, I remember that my earliest memory of taking being and this is amazing being given a bath was in a sink with a pump that you pump the handle and the water came out and that's how the water came into the sink. And of course, if you wanted to heat that water, heated it on the stove. So uh, that's how you had, I remember my first bath as a little tyke was that way. So, uh, uh, you know, then gradually, of course, uh, I mean, those were wonderful days. And right down the road from it was the church. And the church was where all the people came who lived on the land. And you, you were very thankful and very spiritual because you realized that you really uh, were given the land to take care of, not to dominate and to extract minerals from, which fuel, of course, the industrial revolution. And we didn't view the value of the land in terms of the minerals in it that would produce the material goods that really would remove us from the land. It would take us to the cities to work in the distribution centers. I can't tell you how many people I know who grew, uh, 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 women, I'm speaking just now women, who drove tractors out into the fields. Much of what those women would do, uh, or they would bring the food out into the fields. And 
I remember there were sandwiches and lemonade and all that brought out to the men and they would drive tractors out to those men. They would also haul in what men needed hauled in, wagons of hay, things of that nature, which we young guys would put up in the barn. Uh, what happened to them in their lifetime is the farm was pulling much pulled out from under them by urban growth and the de-emphasis of, of, of the family farm. And they began driving forklifts in warehouses. And of course, they were very good at it. Driving a forklift in a warehouse for a woman was not a big deal at all who had been raised on a farm driving a tractor. So um, it, was, it was really quite an easy transition, but it was also a real problem because those people moved off the farm and moved to the city. And, and the farm, what happened to it, the land was still there. It still produced, but it was a corporation that farmed the land. So when I went back to my, one of my family houses as a child, saw it as an adult, I was struck by the fact that I remember the barnyard was always dusty. There was no grass at all on it because there was so much equipment moving around on it all the time. Uh, we had tractors running all day long. And, and, and trucks and wagons, and there was no time for grass to grow. But when I came back to the farm, it was eerily quiet. There was nobody living in this sturdily built brick house, which was the farmhouse. The antenna was still there even. But, and there was no dust in the barnyard. It was all covered with grass because nobody lived there. No children played there. No dogs ran around there. It was, but the fields were full of a product, if you will, corn and beans, and big corporations came along with big tractors and came through there and harvested it, but they didn't live there. And this is really a transition has serious repercussions for the American way of life, I think. Right now, for example, as I view single member districts in this county, it is not an argument between Republicans and Democrats. It is an argument between urban and rural people. And that is, that is the real, real problem in trying to help people understand what's at stake here with this battle that's going to come up in the fall here over single member districts. You see, if you really want to understand it in the simplest way, imagine if you just gave the city of Gainesville, I think I may have mentioned this already, it gave them one commissioner, the whole the city. And then you gave the southern part of the county a commissioner, that's two. You gave the eastern part of the county a commissioner, that's three. You gave the western part of the county a commissioner, that's four. And you gave the northern part of the county a commissioner, that's five. Well, wouldn't that make a much different discussion? And it wouldn't matter whether they're Republican or Democrat. It wouldn't, it wouldn't, remember, it wouldn't matter at all. It, it would be that you're coming from a location with whom you have rapport with, for, with people who have needs that city people don't understand. And understandably, in this county particularly, we're losing farmland rapidly, rapidly. And when I say farmland in this county, uh, much of farming has been pine tree farming. And so when you go by and see something cleared of the pine tree, to be replaced by asphalt parking lot, you have radically changed, you have radically changed your, uh, your economy. 
Uh, I think Nathan's back with us, but uh, I'll, I'll blend him in with what I've been talking about and see if he's got a better connection. Uh, Nathan, if you're, are you here with me, sir? Nelly, he was. Anyway, that, that is, that is the, uh, the issue that I see that is really at stake here in this country. And it's not for nothing that a lot of the rural area of the country is Republican and a lot of the cities are Democrat. And you can see what's happened to the cities. They've lost their human quality. And when I was talking a moment ago about growing up on the farms and then going to the church, uh, we're all the same human beings. We knew each other. We talked to each other. We understood each other's families. And often the families, you know, got to know each other and intermarried. So it's, uh, I think the biggest mistake, and it's going to take 50, 60 years to realize it from here, is probably going to be, although those of us who are trying to cling to the rural life understand it, uh, the, the biggest problem is going to be uh, uh, the loss of the farmland. And because we have the, are you with me, Nathan? Uh, can you hear me? I can hear you, and I think it's better if we just stay on the phone with you. Are you there? So anyway, while we try to connect with him again, what I want to say is the loss of the farmland. If you take a look at the United States of America, as we've talked before, it's between two big bodies of water with prevailing winds across it, with a big plain down the middle fed by river tributaries to the Gulf, which can produce all sorts of food all the way up into Canada. So uh, we've changed that to a, a material society and we've had, you know, go to these abstractions in order to have value to life. And I don't think abstractions will ever give value to life the way specific behaviors in interpersonal relationships do. Nathan, are you back, sir? Uh, yes. How's it sound? That sounds good. Sounds good. Okay. Nathan, I was just going through a theme because whenever you disappeared like that, the old super talented host here has to start ad-libbing, okay? And uh, I'll tell you what I was ad-libbing about, sir, and this may figure into your economic forecast. I think one of the real problems we have in this country is that we've translated our rural land into urban centers, and we've lost the family farm as an economic kind of pillar of the society. So we've gone with this abstract value we talked about a little bit, Bitcoin and dollars and all these things. Whereas once upon a time, I talked to my mother who lived to be 107 and a half, grew up in the rural America, of course, born in 1912. How'd you get through the depression? She said, well, we didn't have money, but we had a plenty of food and we had plenty of family. So here we are, sir. Do you have that in your book? <laughs> <laughs> well, it... In the U.S., uh, something's happened is that our farming has become fantastically efficient. Uh, we produce uh, all of our food with only 2% of the, of the population working on farms. And, and just the natural consequence of that is 98% of people aren't farmers. Now, most of the farms in the United States are family-owned, uh, but the family has become a big business, and they own 4,000 acres in Kansas or something like that. And there's also corporate farmers as well. Uh, so yeah, we have gotten away from that, and, and it's a little, it's a little precarious because we don't have a direct connection with our food anymore. And uh, you know, maybe we could, it puts us in, in potentially a, a situation where the government could, 
not make food available. <laughs> well, we've got that, do we not, with a baby formula? That's food. And, uh, and that's, that's one example. Yes, uh, they shut down 40% of baby formula production. They have some excuses, but poof, instant crisis, right? Well, that's what I'm concerned about is that we've got um, the food the supply chain is the fancy word I think we hear now, Nathan. How does the supply chain thing, since most of our production really is done in capitalistic ways, of course, with the cheapest labor, and that's overseas and particularly China. Um, how's that figure into, I'm just picking your brain because you guys have really uh, studied this inflation and what the root causes of it are and all the contributing uh, factors to it. Uh, well, in the book, we really wanted to, to kind of distinguish uh, two basic classes of what people call inflationary factors. Kind of important because the term inflation kind of becomes this giant stew pot of all kinds of things that might influence prices. And you, when you end up talking about everything and nothing, and as, as consequences, the government responses tend to be very confused. And, and actually even destructive and harmful in price controls, kind of being an obvious one, which Nixon did in the 70s, and you wouldn't believe that anyone could be so stupid as to do that in Canada, but now we have Elizabeth Warren talking about this. Uh, so anyway, in the book, we wanted to separate uh, non-monetary influences and monetary influences. And non-monetary influences are pretty simple. It's just supply and demand. Uh, if you have... Uh, Okay, we're going to lose him. That's not going to work. Uh, I'm not sure why he's going yeah. to handle it. You back? Okay, let me see what we got here. I think you probably just ought to kill the video and try to just upload on your audio. Yeah. And get a little closer to your microphone. We, we really, it's the voice we need more than a picture. Oh, we got a break coming up here at the bottom of the hour. How about we take our break now, uh, Evan? We're going to take a break, Nathan, and uh, we'll be off the air. I mean, we'll be able to talk, and uh, our audience will be listening to our ads. So uh, let's take that break now, Evan. Is that okay? This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. The Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Maurice T. McDaniel, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, RR Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Ward Scott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All bees poop. A warthog. He's gonna come up the steps. Here he comes. 
Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Ken Cornell, known as the thin-skinned water boy. Ken Cornell, known as Minnie Mike. Ken Cornell, wears elevator shoes. Ken Cornell, he just wants to be liked. All right, Professor Ward Scott here in the Warthog Manly Command Center inside the Mellon Law Studio. We're back with Nathan Lewis. We're going to try just audio uh, rather than video and audio because uh, Mr. Lewis is en route from upstate New York to Washington, D.C. to talk about the subject we're discussing with him that he has co-written along with Steve Forbes and Elizabeth Ames, and that is about inflation and whether we uh, are be. Uh, spurring economic growth or returning to sound dollars anchored by gold or all these issues are taking up uh, uh, our minds right now and our cultural concerns. Uh, Nathan, I hear this all the time about returning to the gold standard, but I, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be the devil's advocate. I just don't think it's going to happen. Uh, well, it's a political process and um the political opportunity doesn't come along all the time, but it does tend to come along eventually. Eventually, the existing system becomes so intolerable that they say, okay, we have to fix this, and you go to some other system. And it's not just not, that's not just necessarily gold. The two basic systems that exist are some kind of government-managed currency, which we have today, and some kind of stable value policy. Now, to, now to explain what I'm talking about, uh, we don't really, not many countries use gold today. Uh, in fact, it's actually banned by the IMF, so they can't. But there are a lot of countries who had ran into their own problems. They had their own difficulties and they ad abandoned government managed currency. And they basically went to a, like a, a dollar or a euro based link. So their currencies are, the value is linked to the dollar. The value is linked to the euro. Value is sometimes linked to a currency basket. Over 100 countries have actually done this. So uh, the idea, the cycle of the government-managed currency kind of becomes intolerable, and then we switch to a, an external standard of value remains very common today. And of course, in the United States, we can't link to the dollar. So the only real alternative is to link to gold. So I think we can, this, that opportunity will come probably within the next 10 years, I would guess. Where there'll be just enough pressure on the value of our currency that we'll want to commit to going back to gold? Is that, your, is that what you are predicting, so to speak? Well, what you find in, in country after country, sometimes things just go completely out of hand and they have hyperinflation, as much of Eastern Europe did in the 1990s. And, and they went to the Deutschmark and, and then the euro. Uh, like I said, gold is, no, is banned by the IMF right now. The United States is, well, not the United States, but the American colonies themselves have hyperinflation in the 17, uh, 1780s, and they went to gold in 1789 with the Constitution. Uh, so this, this process can take place. Uh, it, it can take place kind of with a complete catastrophe like hyperinflation, 
or just things get so intolerable that they say, you know, we just can't have politicians run our money because you might get a good guy and then you get a bad guy. You know, you have a good time, then it's just unreliable. Well, you know, Nathan, that's a good point, because I, I have been reading quite a bit about how this government, and I suppose y'all and all these other people involved in this, didn't anticipate inflation. Am I reading that right? Have I seen that headline correctly in the Wall Street Journal? Or my, you know, they didn't know it would be this bad, or they didn't think it would come like this. And how do you look at that? Well, actually, there, there's a fair amount of truth to that. Uh, we like we ultimately governments are to blame because it's their responsibility. But we are getting a combination of two things. First of all, we really did have a very aggressive response to COVID by central banks and governments. Uh, which basically amounted to more or less creating a fair a lot of money of printing, so to speak. They didn't actually print it, but creating a lot of money out of nowhere. Uh, and this resulted in a decline, again, uh, in the value of our currencies, and, and markets are adjusting to that with higher prices. And then on top of that, we have these supply chain kind of issues, these supply and demand issues, which have been persistent and widespread, in part due to COVID, uh, in a way that we really haven't seen since World War II and the period shortly after that. So uh, the idea that they would be transitory, you know, a year ago, oh, it's, yeah, we have these problems, but they're going to go away. Well, they haven't gone away, but that's that's fairly unusual. So I, I would kind of give them a pass on that one. What do you make of this modern monetary theory that you have uh, cited in your book? Um, it's a lefty kind of uh, advocacy, is it not? Yeah. Um, whenever <laughs> you, you, this is is eternal, there's always someone who says, you know, we could just make money, and there, all the problems in the world can be solved. It seems like with mo more money, right? The whole left, whatever the lefty list of you know a hundred top problems that can be solved by government spending, pretty soon you say, well, we could just create the money and, and fix all of our problems, and that's been around forever. There are books written on that in the 17th century, believe it or not, in, in Britain. Uh, and then they did it again in the 18th century in France. Uh, so, But the question is really, you, do you take this eternal crank stuff and take it seriously? Uh, and that is really uh, a disturbing trend that we have in the, in the United States today. Many, many governments have gone down this path and it never works out well. Um, so we, one of the reasons we decided we want to come out and write this book is because we definitely get into some very troublesome political processes, which we hadn't had in the past in the, US, in the United States, but we have seen elsewhere, like in Latin America, where you're getting into this pattern of financing socialistic big government programs with money creation. That's a very, that, I love that phrase. Financing big government programs with money creation. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. And what do we hope to accomplish with these big government programs? Um, well, don't they disengage people from the work ethic? Uh, yeah, it was, you know, it's one long list of bad ideas for the most part. Uh, we, we're getting into this. People have talked about this for years, but we are getting into a debt deficit spending situation that is getting pretty problematic. Uh, we actually ended the United States federal government actually ended World War II with 120 percent debt to GDP ratio. That's about where it is today. 
Uh, but the difference is what they did about it. They immediately slashed spending. The government ran a surplus, and, and they were had pretty much a balanced budget throughout the 50s and 60s. Uh, there was one year, the famous Lyndon Johnson guns and butter budget, I think it was 1967, where everyone was pulling their hair out. Ah, oh, it's completely ridiculous, you know. And it was a deficit of 2.6% of GDP, and it was the biggest in the, in the 20-year period. Just to give an idea of how we had more discipline in those days, and a lot of the entitlement programs that we have today, you know, Medicare and that sort of thing, was just getting started. Uh, but now we're kind of in deep. And not only that, but we are... Um, we're kind of doubling down, right? We're kind of making things worse, not better, with even more proposed spending programs in Congress. And it's a political process. Like I said, once you have the spending, then you got the pressure on the central bank to finance the spending. And the central bank might resist. They say it's a bad idea. But when the pressure gets heavy enough, they'll cave, won't they? Well, let's talk about something. I've got a question just coming in on Social Security. I've always been hearing that Social Security will run out of money. And, of course, they steal from Social Security. And, of course, one of the things that irks people about Social Security is you're taxed on it going in and you're taxed on it coming out. Have you studied the um, prognostication, perhaps, on this, um, since we're talking about an entitlement? I don't see Social Security as an entitlement because working people actually were, were docked money to create the money pool, which the government stole from. Is that too cynical? <laughs> um, it was... Social Security has always been a pay-as-you-go system where the money that comes in pays people. There's no, there's no you know, big bucket of money somewhere that, that pays this stuff out. It is running into deficits now for the first time in many years uh, where the, the money going in doesn't pay for all the benefits. Uh, but it, it's, it's a pretty small deficit. So um, uh, it, it's actually not that big a deal I, 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 that I see. I think the Social Security system has kind of morphed into uh, it's, it's not a very good system. Um, there are other systems used by other countries. There is what's called a provident fund system that's used in, in many countries, over 30 countries use it. And it's basically kind of like a mandatory 401k. It's an investment in real productive assets. And there's two advantages to this. Uh, there's three advantages. One, the government's not involved. You know, you basically, you own an investment account. Uh, and the two, second thing is the returns on the investment account are usually pretty good, much better than, than so you actually make more money that way. And then, and the third thing is, is it goes to finance real business. It's not, you know, tax to go into the government gigantic waste machine. On the other end of those investments is real productive economy. And so you get a better economy, right? And you're, it's business hiring people and building things. And so it's hopefully in the future, Republicans have talked about this for a long time, that we might be able to transition to a provident fund type system. Do you think that things will change provided the forecast of a red wave, which I'm not entirely sure of, will come in the fall? Do you think that it can be, it was in my mind, my memory dramatically turned around when Reagan came in. Um, and to some extent, you know, uh, Bill Clinton was all involved with making the books, uh, you know, balance. Uh, what do you think is the political temperature of this issue? Uh, well, people have complained for a long time. They can't tell much difference between the Democrats and the Republicans. And, and, and that, you know, I think that uh, Clinton and Reagan, as you mentioned, there actually were, that were positive developments there. But, but I think that we're getting into this situation where 
you know, business as usual in Congress is not going to work anymore. They're going to have to, you know, the, the, all these big decisions that they've been avoiding, they're going to have to make some decisions on. But then the other problem is, is do we really have elections at all anymore? Uh, you know, a lot of, there was a lot of pretty weird stuff going on in the uh, 2020 elections. And you have to wonder not only at the presidential level, but at all levels, Congress, state, even local levels, whether these election results are even real. <laughs> well, you know, locally, Nathan, we've been investigating that very issue here on Ward Scott Files. And what we've kind of finally concluded was that the influence of Zuckerberg's uh, proliferated the absentee ballot for which there was no accountability. And uh, just in our particular county, uh, uninvited, uh, Zuckerberg uh, dumped in $700,000 of private money to a public election, and which is, should be, I think, publicly financed. But in this case, it was supplemented and it was cherry-picked as to where it was supplemented in critical areas by Zuckerberg's, the so-called Zuckerberg uh, Civic for Life uh, contributions. And that's never been calculated as uh, an election problem. And I think that's one of the reasons this has not been understood is because it's not been defined as really changing the, the election books. Now, here in the state of Florida, we are tremendously uh, indebted to the leadership of DeSantis. DeSantis has set up an election integrity commission, funded it with 3.5 million uh, for the Florida Department of Law Enforcement to go directly to the problem and resource it and check it out, investigate it, uh, trying to send a message, you know, that we're not going to put up with this because like you, so many of us realize uh, this, there's a, a narrative here that that uh, is not really holding water, but it's the one you've got to speak or you get woke, if you know what I mean. Yeah, you know, so you took, I mean, to, to kind of re relate this uh, conversation to our original topic, uh, yeah, I, we are kind of getting into, as I say, our politics is getting more and more Latin American. A lot of these things, you know, kind of jimmying the elections and jimmying the election numbers and uh, not playing by the rules until there was really no rules at all anymore. These are patterns you often see in Latin America. You know, this is like Argentina. This is kind of like Brazil. Uh, and that is a very, uh, that's a very bad direction for the United States. And, uh, you know, in, in terms of debt and deficit and spending and ultimately the quality of our money, yeah, it affects all that. You know, why does Latin America have a terrible, such a terrible history of currency discipline? And it's because of that. You know, they have poor politics. They, they've actually tried a number of times over the years. Argentina used to have a dollar currency board. They don't anymore. Now they have Again, one of the worst currencies in Latin America. And, you know, it, it's kind of because of politics. We're going, we're going to have to, as Americans, clean up our politics. And it might all come together. I, I, actually, I actually think it's actually somewhat positive uh, because we might have such a crisis that we can actually have a clean slate. Just the other stuff just doesn't work at all anymore. And we'll actually be able to set things up the way we like. And you've seen, uh, for example, the Eastern European countries did this after the fall of the Soviet Union in the 90s. And they had a very good response. In fact, they stole our ideas. So, you know, they came out, they came out as COVID communism. They went into like just this hyperinflationary collapse in the 90s. They said, you know what? 
we can't do this anymore. So what's the solution? And what they did is they adapted a stable monetary value policy. In that case, linked to the Deutsche Mark and the euro, but it could be gold. And they basically adopted the Steve Forbes flat tax. My co-author, Steve Forbes, remember his flat tax from the 90s and the early 2000s? Sure they did. basically did that in Eastern Europe. And it worked. They had phenomenal growth. And uh, we might get the uh, chance to do what you know, Estonia and Bulgaria did uh, 20 years ago, and it might be awesome. Well, you know, every idea uh, has its, it's a matter of timing. It's not that it's a bad idea. And I'm glad you mentioned uh, the flat tax because there's nothing wrong with that idea. It works, but it's the acceptance of the idea and the timing of that. And we may, now that you put that in my mind, we may be coming around of running that uh, past the public again because we, I, I think you've got something here when you say we need to really clean up our politics. That I, I don't know of anybody on either side of the aisle, if you want to use that metaphor, who doesn't agree that the politics are all screwed up. Uh, of course, each blames the other. And, but somebody's got to come in. It doesn't appear to, it's going to be the courts. Uh, and that's one of the things that concerns us is that all our institutions are compromised, it seems. You know, the CIA through Brennan, you know, went after Trump with the false narrative, and uh, then the FBI gets involved. So that institution, you can, you know, where are we where we can trust an institution? Uh, the financial world is, seems to be your expertise. Is there anything, I've been reading about how the woke priorities have infected, if you will, financial decisions. Uh, yes, uh, actually, uh, um one of the funny things that happens is we have all these uh, mutual funds and index funds and ETFs, index ETFs. Well, what happens is these companies that own all these shares, like BlackRock, they actually get voting rights on those shares and they can vote in and they can influence managements that way. They can actually hire and fire the managements because they own all the shares. They're actually the owners. Uh, so that that's another one of our problems. But uh, you know, I would say to Americans, it might seem like things are kind of hopeless politically. But the important thing, uh, there's there's two things that I see coming up. One is we things might get so bad that we'll think that the existing order will simply not be, be, be viable anymore. And the other important thing is you have to have an image in your mind about what should replace it. Because if you don't have an image in your mind, you know, if you don't know what you want, you're not going to get it. You're just going to get Latin American chaos, right? You just have one strong man after the other. I'm the big boss, whatever. Uh, and as it turns out, uh, we're losing all that, Nathan. I don't know if you can hear me or not. I'm not sure what happened to that feed. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I apologize for that, listeners. Uh, we're hearing the same broken uh, voice. And we're not able to, uh, I don't think he can hear us. 
communicate to him that he's not coming through. There he Huh? Yeah. Golf? Yeah. Well, we're having a fascinating discussion. Unfortunately, it's uh, kind of on the road here uh, with Nathan Lewis, but certainly he knows his stuff, and uh, certainly he has uh, thought through some of these issues that are on our minds, too. And I think there's an interesting hypothesis he has here uh, that I think pretty much everyone shares that I've talked to and that things are getting ready to get very, very bad. Now, when they get very, very bad, then uh, what happens to us when we um, get that bad, do we go to the streets with some sort of uh, chaotic revolution and uh, violence, which would be very, very uh, probably unsuccessful because the government, as in Latin American countries, would um, put that down probably. So, and then you don't want defections in your government because you didn't have uh, instability in that institution. And we were just talking about how so many of the institutions are compromised and we don't need a compromised military as an institution. So we're going to have to do it at the ballot box. And that's one of the reasons the Ward Scott Files has been so thoroughly involved with evaluating, if you will, uh, what and how ballots are cast, counted, and, uh, and what they result in. Because this is the crux of the matter. If we can't make the uh, election process a, something that you can put faith in and that you want to participate in and give it some accountability. Of course, it's been uh, uh, corrupted by this idea that anybody, as I say, who can breathe on a mirror can vote. That's not good. Nowhere else in our society do we do that. We pull people over, take them off the road if they, uh, can't, drive, they can't drive without a license. Uh, we're trying to make sure that People who are irresponsible don't get a hold of dangerous weapons, not only uh, cars, but also right now what's fashionable in the news is, is, uh, is, uh, is uh, guns. Um, and, you know, we've got other institutions though, that are compromised. We've got, the, uh, comprom uh, we've got a, a compromised education system. So um, the one we can change, though, we can change at the local level. We can, uh, we can change at the state level we can change at the national level is the electoral process. And uh, the problem with a Pelosi and those people is they know what they want for an outcome. So they're willing to uh, do anything they need to do to corrupt the, how they reach that outcome. As long as they reach that outcome, uh, this January 6th inquisition is a fine example. Uh, the committee is not balanced. It's not objective. It's a, uh, got a preconceived objective, and that is to stick a dagger in the heart of Trump because they just absolutely are petrified by his connection with the people. And, and, and they don't have that kind of connection. One of the things that everybody has had trouble adjusting to is that here was Trump demanding uh, crowds that had, took miles long of traffic to go see him and people willing to put up with it. And here's Biden, nobody ever saw and couldn't draw a crowd of 50. And so people wondered how in the world can a man who can't draw a crowd of 50 uh, beat a man who draws throngs of millions 
in a fair and square fight. And so people now are highly suspect that there's any such thing as a fair and square fight, but it keeps getting uh, pushed to the back of the room. You're not allowed to talk about it. You're not allowed to think about it. You're not allowed to even whisper it. Now, hopefully that's not going to prevail because if that's the case, people won't go to the election process to make change. They will have bowed out of that as well. And you'll see many, many more uh, things resolved with uh, uh, confrontation like you've seen in the so-called insurrection, which is really a frustration uh, by the people because they don't think their government was leveling with them. They don't think uh, this thing was done the way it should have been done. And even an expert like our guest here uh, has said the same thing. There's all this doubt in the culture about whether or not we are really being fair or whether we're trying to manipulate and get the result we want. Now, we have got this going on locally, which is a curious phenomenon when you think about it. I mean, deliberately, a, a person from the supervisor elections here goes to a jail to sign up people. And, and it's already been declared that they're not to be signed up unless they have paid everything back and then never ask anybody they sign up if they paid anything back. You know, it is really, in terms of fairness, people think that's unfair. I mean, why would you do that to people? Well, the only thing I can think of why you would do it is to pad the numbers in the direction you want it to go to get the results you want. I, I mean, that, that's what the pattern seems to be that has undermined the integrity of the election system. So, and here we have this example locally. And, and I just showed you yesterday that our own state attorney doesn't want to mess with it. it. Takes the position, well, I don't investigate stuff. I only prosecute stuff. You can't prosecute unless you investigate or unless you authenticate that which has been investigated. And he has got an investigation which has already been done by the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, an eight-month investigation. So it's not that, he, you know, they just don't want to deal with it. It's just something they just don't want to deal with. And so we wonder if we have that attitude locally from a Republican, a Republican state attorney, then what do we got nationally? I mean, ye gods, if you don't want to get off your duff and protect the integrity of the election system, which is our best hope to have peaceful transitions in this country, what good are you? Because that leads to all the other things that you call crime. I mean, they, they are trying to criminalize the January 6th thing. And, and um, the January 6th thing is a huge convulsion of frustration. And yes, there's misbehavior. And yes, there's things that are done out of line. But, you know, the people didn't go to all this trouble uh, to, to get to this position. They didn't, will, they didn't want to go do this. They got frustrated about it. And they, they said, I can't take it. Uh, I can't take it anymore. And now, now, rather than go honestly investigate, the, honestly investigate the causes as to why those people went there, they're trying to blame somebody for it and exonerate themselves. When we know darn good and well, Hillary Clinton started it all in 2016 with Obama, with false narratives. But nobody's allowed to, uh, to that, that false narrative is completely 
you can repeat that all day long and not be punished. You can't repeat the, the narrative that there was some problem with the election without, be, without that being called a false narrative. When everybody knows there was, things just don't come out that way. So it's a, I picked up on what Nathan Lewis said about we've got an opportunity coming up in the fall and that opportunity is not very far away. And we don't make these changes at the voting booth. We probably then, I, and I'm never wrong. I, I think you've probably figured that out by now. I'm never wrong. I study these things very carefully. I'm cautious and conservative in my predictions. And I just predict that things will get much worse if we don't make a change in the, in, in, at the election box in the fall. We don't want to end up like Venezuela, do we? We don't want to end up like Argentina, do we? But we are headed that way, my friends. We are headed that way. So we're going to keep pushing at the Ward Scott files for election integrity. We're going to keep looking for institutional responsibility and people doing the job that they should be doing, that they're paid to do, that they were elected to do, that they were entrusted to do. And we'll take the flag. I mean, you can call me names. You can, you know, label me this, label me that. It doesn't really matter because what matters is what happens with you all in these decisions that we have as a culture that are supposed to be done a fair and square on a level playing field. So to that end, the Ward Scott Files commits its resources. We appreciate our, our, our sponsors and we appreciate our contributors and our donors. So it's a, it's a team effort. It's just not me. I mean, it's a team effort. It's a research team effort. So I apologize for the breakup we had here with our expert uh, uh, on the way to DC and perhaps someday we'll get him back. Uh, he's uh, talked about the flat tax, which he co uh, he's associated of course in this book they they've written about inflation with Steve Forbes. Steve Forbes has been promoting the flat tax uh, I learned as a research professor, professor of research writing, that uh, a lot of times my students would come back with a good idea, but it wouldn't be adopted. And I learned it from them. They'd ask me a question. Uh, why, if my idea is so good and I research it so, so thoroughly, isn't it accepted? And I finally came up with a realization is because the society is not ready to accept it yet. It, it, you know, and you know, one. It's all about timing. In nature, you understand ripeness is all. That's King Lear, Shakespeare. Ripeness is all. So I'm pretty sure it's King Lear. It might be Hamlet, but it's certainly Shakespeare. Ripeness is all. And what he means is that that fruit doesn't fall from the tree until the ripeness dictates it do so, and then it is prepared and ready. You can't accelerate that fall and you can't decelerate that fall. It will happen when it's to happen. And we've got a situation coming up in the fall. It appears to be ripeness is all. So we're going to keep working for you to try to help you have the best information you can get from a source you can trust. Warthog Command Center out.